Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Pastor Douglas Wilson's talk, Poetic Knowledge, from our audio collection titled, Poetic Knowledge. Well, in this first talk, I'm going to try to explain to you why we named the conference the way we did, why, why we're having a conference on uh, poetic ministry. I, I understand we've heard reports that we've had some people saying, I'm not going to that conference. What, are they, what on earth are they talking about? Um, the, the title did not communicate uh, everything that we want to communicate. It was, it was intended to be provocative. I hope it was. And it was intended to, to stir people up and say, what on, what on earth is this, what on earth could this possibly be about? Well, by po- first, by poetic ministry, we are talking to a, another approach to understanding wisdom, knowledge, learning that lies underneath that, which, which we are calling poetic knowledge. But, but by poetic knowledge, we do not intend to say that your knowledge should be, uh, uh, should, should rhyme or should, should scan or should sound sing-songy. Uh, we're not talking about how to get cute little rhyming messages on your reader board, uh, how to get your church into Reader's Digest, and th- that sort of thing. Um, I, we hope to show why you shouldn't even have a reader board. We hope to show why the modern evangelical church and, tragically, a large portion of the Reformed church uh, today doesn't have a soul. Right. Now, this is, this, is hard, this is hard business. If you're in the in the business of shepherding souls, if you're in the, in the business, if you want to call it a business, if you're in the work, the labor of shepherding souls, ministering to souls, you are at a great disadvantage if you don't have a soul. If you, if you don't have one and, and you treat the people that you're ministering to as, as entities that don't have a soul either. Now, uh, some of you are familiar with the book that, that Doug Jones and I wrote together, Angels and the Architecture, and, and there's one chapter in that, uh, in that book devoted to a discussion of poetic knowledge. Now, we're talking about poetic ministry, an approach to ministry, an, an approach to uh, the church and the work of the church that acknowledges that your people have souls, that, acknowledge, that acknowledges that the church corporately should behave as though it has a soul and is not just a set of emotions on the one hand as you see in many goo churches there are a lot of people who tr- they, they don't have a holistic view of man they call it holistic but what they mean to say is that men are nothing but uh, their emotions or women are nothing but their emotions and so we minister to their emotions and we try to provoke their emotions all too often however in the reformed community we um, we treat the saints of God as though they were nothing but brains with feet you know, the, the feet get them to church, and then we, then we lecture to them, and we give them all the stuff that they should um, believe. Now, of course, I don't want to make light of belief. I don't want to make light of emotions. What we have to do is understand that all these things have to go together the way God designed, the way God intended. Now, in that chapter on poetic knowledge, uh, we, I gave a number of characteristics. I'd like to go over them a little bit. Uh, here, but I'd like to take one of the characteristics, explain that, and then utilize that characteristic in this talk. One of the characteristics that was described in that chapter 
is that the poetic way of knowing uh, seeks to know by means of addition, not subtraction. Seeks to know by means of addition, not subtraction. The Hellenistic way of knowing, an abstract and analytic way of knowing, is how many things can we take away from this and still have that thing, all right? If, if you want to know what a bird is, the, the analytic abstract approach in essence says, how many feathers can we take away, can, uh, take away and still have a bird? Can we take away one wing and still have a bird? Can we take, how, how much can we subtract and still have essential birdness? And then you come to the definition of the bird in the dictionary or, you know, uh, dissected neatly, defined neatly, and you've gotten to this essential definition by means of subtraction. Poetic knowledge seeks to know by means of addition, by looking at the bird from this angle, then from that angle, then by painting a picture of it, then by writing a poem about it, then by going and looking at a hundred other birds, and then by talking to your friends about the birds, and you say, well, wait, wait, that's hopeless. You're never going to get done. You're never going to understand a bird. <laughs> exactly. All right. That's exactly the point. This is not an approach for the tidy-minded. If you want everything neatly labeled, schematically diagrammed, and say, okay, here in my, in my little mental universe, this is where the birds are, and that's where they are, and they're pinned to the card, and you know, they're, they're just so, then uh, this is going to, what we're going to be talking about here over the next few days is going to mess with your head. I, what I want to do is describe poetic knowledge. I want to describe the poetic mentality that will go into poetic ministry, and I want to describe it by means of addition. I want to describe it by means of layering. I don't want to give you an essential, pithy definition that you can take and then say, okay, this is poetic knowledge, and then run off and apply it, plug it in. Because if you, if you did that, what you had would not be the thing itself. It'd be, it'd be contradictory. So I'm going to be seeking to describe poetic knowledge instead of defining it. Now, of course, I hope you understand that this is simply another way of defining it. Also, uh, I want to begin, uh, this will be in the content of the talk later on, but I want to begin with a few warnings or a few um, uh, caveats. Many people are reacting to uh, stainless steel modernity. They don't like the soul-destroying, mind-numbing, people-eating machine that we've created. And so they're reacting in many different ways. One of the reactions to modernity is, of course, post-modernity. And that is a, uh, a full embrace of the relativism that was inherent in modernity. And some people think that what we're talking about here is simply an evangelical or reformed view of post-modernity. And it sounds like relativism to them, or it sounds, it sounds fishy because you can't label it and define it. Well, uh, rest assured, it is not that. Uh, we, we might um, plead guilty to the charge of being pre-modern, but we do not uh, plead guilty to the charge of being post-modern. Now, in using the phrase poetic knowledge, if, so that you can get your uh, biblical bearings, in using the phrase poetic knowledge, we are pointing to, not defining on a, on a three by five card, but pointing to the biblical concept of wisdom. Now, we could have solved a lot of problems if we just said a conference on wisdom. Right? We were going to talk about wisdom and uh, biblical wisdom. So why didn't we just say 
say that this is what we're about. Who could be against wisdom? Who's going to say that's uh, wisdom is postmodern or wisdom is uh, relativistic or, or whatever? Well, of course, nobody's going to oppose wisdom, but it's remarkable in the modern world and it's remarkable in the modern Christian world how little you hear about wisdom. You hear a lot about education, you hear a lot about knowledge, you hear a lot about smarts, but how uh, we, we rarely hear about wisdom. In the modern world, not many people pay attention to wisdom. Wisdom is cumulative. Wisdom is cumulative, and therefore, in the world of creatures, it is varied. Right? Because wisdom accumulates, different people accumulate wisdom at different rates of speed. They accumulate it in different places. They accumulate it in different ways. You're not ever going to um, you're not ever going to find two wise people, a wise man and a, another wise man, or a wise woman and another wise woman. You're never going to find two of them who are identical. You're, this is not a process that admits of standardization. Now, God runs us through many different uh, processes that have certain things in common. So this is why an older person, an older Christian, can exhort and encourage a younger Christian because they went through a trial like that when they were first married or they went through a trial like that when they first took another job in another city. And, and there's, there's a basis for communication. We can relate. At the same time, we do not relate to one another the way ball bearings relate to one another. We are not identical. We are not uh, stamped out of the same machine. Wisdom is cumulative, and therefore, in the world of creatures, wisdom is varied. Wisdom in one man and wisdom in another are distinguished by more than the factory serial number on the bottom. That's another way of saying that wisdom does not have a factory serial number on the bottom. You can't turn it upside down and say, now, where did this guy get his wisdom? And say, oh, this, this was from the factory in Des Moines. Or this was from, uh, I, I know how to track this down. Wisdom is not like that because wisdom is cumulative. You can note similarities, but you can't ever specify and get, get it defined down to the last decimal point how this wisdom is identical to that wisdom. The only ultimate wisdom is found in God. Right? The only non-accumulative wisdom is found in God. God does not learn anything. God is omniscient. God knows everything. He is all wisdom. He's the source of wisdom. At the heart of this conference is the thesis that we are not God. We can't be like him in, his, uh, in those attributes that are not communicable. Right? We can participate in his love. We can participate in his wisdom. We can participate in his kindness. He can bestow these things upon us. But those are communicable attributes. The holiness of God is communicable. The love of God is communicable the kindness of God, the justice of God. These are things that he gives to us by his grace, and he commands us to imitate. In Ephesians, we're told to imitate God as dearly loved children. So we are to imitate God in his kindness. We're to imitate God in his love. We're to imitate God in his zeal for righteousness. We're to be imitators of God. But we are not to imitate God in his omnipotence. We are not to imitate God in his immutability. We are not to imitate God in these um, attributes of God which cannot be communicated to a creature. Right? Now, a large part of what uh, we are calling the Enlightenment Project, a large part of what we are 
uh, addressing as the modernity experiment and then this little postmodern reaction to it in recent years is the result of men trying to apprehend that which only God can have. They want to be God. This temptation goes back to the garden. You shall be as God. And the, the enticement is set, set before them. And we want to get all of God's knowledge, all of God's immutable characteristics into our um, heads. I think it was Chesterton who says in Orthodoxy that uh, the poet seeks to get his head into the heavens. The materialist seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it's his head that splits. Right? You can't, you can't think the way God does. You can't be God. You can't compete with God. You can't strive with God. He is the uncreated creator. And he tells us what to imitate, and he tells us what not to imitate. And it's the first portion of wisdom to understand what it is we are to imitate and what it is we are not to imitate. When we try to be like God in his incommunicable attributes, we run ourselves into hopeless contradictions and follies. And this is what the modern world is like. Now, tragically, the reason we're, we're doing this conference, and you'll hear us bash modernity quite a bit, and you'll hear us bash postmodernity quite a bit, but what, the reason we're doing this is we believe that many conservative, Bible-believing Christians, many Reformed Christians, many confessional Christians are far more modern than they think they are. And they've adopted surreptitiously far more of the premises of modernity than they believe that they have. They have uh, swallowed many particular premises that are unidentified and undebated in the church. And because they have done so, this results in, in certain bizarre manifestations in the Reformed world and, and in the Christian world. We are simply doing our own subcultural version of what they are doing out there in the unbelieving world. Another way of putting this is oftentimes we want to reject the fruit and keep the tree. We adopt the Enlightenment tree into the church and we don't like the fruit that it bears. And so we run around trying to knock the fruit off the branches whenever it appears and hustle around, have deacons picking up the fruit from the ground and saying that we can't, uh, we can't have that here in the church. And so we're constantly uh, trying to throw fruit out the windows and fruit out the doors. And we say we, we want to practice church discipline. And, we, and, and of course we should practice church discipline, but if, this, if you're practicing discipline all the time, because you have brought the tree into the church and it's bearing fruit according to its nature in the church, at some point we ought to reflect and say, why is this happening to us? Why, why sh uh, shouldn't we return, shouldn't we reflect and think about the whole project that we have undertaken? And this, of course, makes us nervous because when we start talking about change in a world full of change, there will be people who say, You're, this is just a trick. This is just a sneaky way of getting us to change because once we lose our moorings, we're going to, we're going to be swept away with the, uh, the current of post-modernity. We're going to be caught up in this, this world of flux out there and we don't want to be swept downstream that way, which is an admirable sentiment. Of course we do not. But if we don't want to be swept away by that stream, the solution is not to be a conservative about having been swept away by the other stream 100 years ago. What we have to do is return to the ancient paths, as the prophet says. We have to think biblically. We have to learn to think biblically. And this involves more than the content of what you think. It addresses the way that you think it. 
right? So thinking biblically, thinking Hebraically, thinking poetically, this is a, we're all talking about the same thing here, thinking with wisdom, matter of learning to think in a different way than moderns think, not just thinking different conclusions than they think. We have, tragically, in the modern church, we share the operating procedures. We share the, the way of approaching truth. We study and learn and, and apprehend truth the same way they do, and then we try to come out with a different conclusion at the end, and this causes problems for us. All right, with that said, let me turn to this description that I want to give of a biblical man of wisdom. A biblical man of wisdom is someone who has wisdom, and this is more than just knowledge. He thinks Hebraically, not Hellenistically. He thinks in concrete applied terms, not in abstract detached terms. He thinks in terms of obedience or disobedience. He does not seek to think in a, in a realm where there is no such thing as obedience and disobedience. He, he is constantly aware of his position as a creature. So what is this man of wisdom like? The man of wisdom loves the word of God in his incarnation. The, the man of wisdom loves the word of God in his incarnation. This Jesus is understood as more than the sum total of his attributes, labeled and neatly pinned on a card. Um, the attributes of God are not a butterfly collection. The attributes of God are descriptions of the, of the living God, the God of Abraham. And, and so we have to understand that this God, the living God, revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And we love this Jesus of Nazareth, the Word of God, in his incarnation. Now, I hope, uh, I hope you understand that when I'm talking about rejecting a knowledge of God mediated through the attributes of God as though they were a butterfly collection, I hope you understand that I'm not disputing the content of these attributes. All right? When you get a good systematic theology, uh, which can be quite helpful in the same way that Gray's anatomy would be helpful for a doctor, right? you, you can look up these attributes and say, oh, um, Turretin says this about that, and Dabney says this about that. It can be quite helpful, and, and I think it is right and proper and good in its proper place. But picture, give you, let me give you two examples. Picture a doctor who treated all his patients as though they were Gray's Anatomy. Right? A doctor who just thought of them as the sum total of all those diagrams. Right? He would be a lousy doctor. He'd be a rotten doctor. He would not treat the people as people. Now, of course, you might have on the other end of the spectrum a doctor with a great bedside manner who treated them as people but was an nincompoop. He didn't understand anything about medicine, and so that's bad too. When we, when we, say, uh, uh, when, when we say that you know someone and someone says, oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you're claiming that you know your wife, and I, I can easily imagine a man uh, being married to uh, a woman for 20 years, 30 years, and being stumped by the question, uh, how tall is she? Right? He should be able to say, oh, about this, you know, about this tall. But he might say, no, I forget if that's 5'7 or 5'8. I, I forget what's on her driver's license. I forget what's, I, I forget what's on those official uh, cards. Now, he, if someone says, so you, you don't know if she's 6'5 or 8 foot or, or 3 feet? Uh, no, I know, <laughs> no, I know that. What I'm claiming is that I know her, 
and if you were to tell me that she were 5'8", I would say, yeah, that's, that's right. I know that from my experience. Or you might be able to tell her, to tell someone that she's 5'8". And that description of the attribute is not uh, a replacement for his knowledge of her. Now, at the same time, if, if someone says, I know her, and, and yet they know nothing of that person's attributes, they can't, you know, uh, if a man um, could not tell you what color her hair was or what color her eyes were or within three feet of how tall she was or, you know, if, if he was just utterly nonplussed when you asked him these questions, his, his inability to articulate the attributes would be evidence that he didn't know her at all. So when someone says, uh, if, is God most holy? You know, oh, gosh, I don't know. Is God loving? Is he omnipotent? I, I don't know that either. Is God um, omniscient? Well, I, I don't know that either. Or as, the, as is happening, a dangerous heretical movement uh, is developing in certain quarters of the evangelical world. The openness of God theism, uh, Clark Pinnock and uh, others are trumpeting this openness, free will theism, they call it openness of God theism. The God they describe, when you, when you look at the attributes of the God they describe, it's not the God of the Bible. This is an idol. They're talking about someone else. And the way you identify that they're talking about someone else is through a description of attributes, and that's a point that we're going to get to later on. So when, when I say that we need to know and love God in his incarnation, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, I am not disparaging the knowledge, of the abstract knowledge of attributes. I'm just simply saying that we have to guard against our sin and not the sin of the other guy. What is the sin in conservative reform circles? The sin in conservative reform circles is to, is to substitute knowledge for love. All right, that's our sin. We substitute knowledge for love. Now, I'm not saying that knowledge and love are antithetical. When knowledge and love come together, the result is wisdom. All right, when knowledge and love come together, the result is wisdom. So the man of wisdom loves the word of God in his incarnation. And this word in his incarnation is more than the sum total of his attributes. We are loving the Jesus who has fingernails and who, in his person, brought together the infinite and ineffable God with a material man who was born in a certain town on the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Now, I'm not urging pious pilgrimages, but I just want to impress upon you one thing. I've been in the Mediterranean. This is, a, this is an ocean, this is a sea that's still there. Right? And on the eastern end of that ocean, the infinite eternal God was born in a small town, which also, as it happens, is still there. And he was betrayed in another, in another city, which is still there. And he was taken outside that city, and he was crucified, and he was buried, and he came out of the tomb, and all those places where he was, those places are still there. And he's not still there. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And he is the same one who is at the right hand of God the Father. Now, what I'm talking about is that we must love more than propositions. We must love more than propositions. We must love what the propositions point to. Uh, this will be something that's, that's picked up in a later talk. But Jesus says, um, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have, you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. Well, the scriptures point to God. The scriptures reveal God. The scriptures describe God. And we are to love God through these propositions. We don't deny them. We embrace them and understand them rightly. 
If, but if we just grab the propositions and start playing with them as though they were a, a word game, or if we start playing with them as though they, oh, oh look, wonderful nifty ingredients for a systematic theology, and you start stacking them on blocks, and you forget what you're talking about, then that is knowledge, the kind of knowledge that Paul said puffs up, and not wisdom that builds up. And what is wisdom? Love. Right? Wisdom is love that builds up. So that's the first description of a man of wisdom. He loves the incarnation. He loves, he loves the word of God in his incarnation. And this is not, uh, note, I'm not saying he loves the incarnation as a doctrine. He loves the incarnate one. Secondly, the man of wisdom seeks to pile wisdom on top of wisdom and does not tr try to get down to the bare essentials through analytic distillation. This is why in the biblical world, Wisdom is associated with age and experience and not with three years in graduate school. Right? In the Bible, wisdom is associated with age and experience because wisdom accumulates. Knowledge can be raked together in a small pile quickly and stuffed into a very young head. Right? And if you take a young set of shoulders and a young head and you and you send them off to graduate school and you give them 10 pounds of systematic theology and three pounds of biblical theology and uh, five pounds of hermeneutics and you stuff all these uh, groceries, these <laughs> stuff them all into the person's head and they can pass a test. Passing the test, pa uh, shepherding people is not like being in graduate school. It, it, they're completely different um, completely different enterprises. Now, in the Bible, the word elder is connected to, to this. An elder is someone who has experience. It would be um, a contradiction to have a church governed by a, a bench of 17-year-old elders. It, that's oxymoronic. In the, in the Bible, eldership is connected with age and experience and wisdom. And this is, why, this is because the Bible recognizes that in order to be a man of wisdom, the man has to have time to pile wisdom on wisdom. He, this is not something that can be done in short order. But if you distill everything, if you take it all out, if you abstract it out and give it to someone who doesn't have the experience, you can, um, you can produce, in rapid order, a, a small army of young Calvinistic Turks. Right? How long would it take to get to take a bunch of 20-year-old men aside and teach them the Westminster Confession of Faith? And here it is. It's all laid out for you. Boom, 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 boom. And they get a hold of it, and they promptly enter into what we call the cage stage. All right? This is when someone comes into the Calvinistic faith. They need to be locked in a cage for two or three years because you just don't... Don't let them near anybody. Don't let them talk to anybody because they've got this. This is all abstracted out for them. It's distilled for them. It's, it's laid out for them, and they don't have any ballast to go with it. All right? Now, in saying this, I am not objecting to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm just saying that it, is, uh, it doesn't function well as a skeleton without meat, without flesh, without being alive. And the, in order to be alive, it has to be connected to wisdom, experience, um, love, um, uh, interconnectedness, and so forth. So the man of wisdom seeks to pile wisdom upon 
wisdom and does not try to get down to the bare essentials. Let me, let me use another example from another realm. Suppose you're an English teacher, uh, English lit teacher, and one of your students comes up and says, is it, uh, do you object uh, to me preparing for the test by studying Cliff's notes? Okay? Now, I think your answer as an English teacher should vary depending on who the student is. If the student is the kind of student, you know the type, who has postponed reading the book until now, and the test is tomorrow, and they've just discovered this neat thing that someone just told them about. Uh, I can read this little pamphlet, and I can get the plot, structure, characters, and I could pass your test without ever having read the book. And right? I can pass your test without ever having read the book, and, but I'm an honest kid, and so I'm going to ask you about whether I can do this or not. The answer should be, no, you may not. Right? No, you may not. You may not read Cliff's Notes as a substitute for reading the book. You may not do that. That is a counterfeit. That's a fraud. You're, you're ripping yourself off, uh, and you'd be ripping others off if you did that. But suppose the student who came uh, and asked you was a diligent student, had read the book in question three times, had gone over the notes they took from your lectures two times, and wanted now to um, make sure that nothing had gotten through the cracks by reading Cliff's Notes. Um, now, you probably ought to tell them for different reasons not to do it, because they're uh, hyper. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, no, you, don't need, you don't need to do that. But I certainly wouldn't mind if they did that. Right? If, someone, if someone is saturated in Scripture, if they've read their Bible and read their Bible and read their Bible and read their Bible, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a delight. But if that's all they have, the Westminster Confession of Faith, or if all they have is the catechism questions that they grew up with, what they have is a dangerous illusion of wisdom. Because the men who wrote that catechism and the men who wrote the Confession of Faith had wisdom. They had biblical wisdom. And you're teaching people who don't have that wisdom to parrot that wisdom instead of imitating that wisdom. You want everyone in the church to grow up into it rather than simply being able to mouth the words. And so it's essential to pile wisdom on wisdom. Next, the man of wisdom does not hesitate to name, and in naming, to rule. But in his naming and ruling, he must take care not to operate in the name of any false religion, particularly rationalism. We always know far less than we think we do, and have far more authority than we think we have. More often than not, this makes us dangerous ignoramuses. Now, what do I mean by naming? One of the most significant things about mankind is what God uh, gives to mankind in Adam to do right after the creation. The naming of the animals is significant. Adam's naming of Eve is significant. The practice of naming our children down to the present day is significant. What we do when we exercise dominion in the world is important. This is our vice regency under God. We are stewards under God, and part of what we do is we name. In naming, we are shaping, okay? In naming, we are shaping. Let me take a simple example of this. If you name your child, uh, uh, if you name your child David, one, a certain life will happen to him. If you name him Engelbert, another life will happen to him. He will go through life differently. Naming shapes. Right? It's, it's, it gives direction. It's, you're not 
You're not watching this world go by and then you say, I'm going to attach this arbitrary and capricious label to th uh, of this is the label that I'm going to attach to that thing. And when I attach it to that thing, nothing will happen to that thing. It will continue to operate in the machine just as it has always operated in the machine. That's not true. Right? When Adam named the animals, he was establishing a course and a direction for them. When Adam named his wife, he was establishing uh, a course and a direction for her. When parents name their children, they're establishing a course and a direction for them. Now, I'm not saying this in any fatalistic uh, sense. I am simply saying that we have authority in the world. We have authority to act. And uh, an important part of our acting is in our ability and authority to name. This is, this is the case, for example, within, in the arts. When, when an artist paints a bowl of apples, he is not doing this. Let's say it's a, it's a glorious still life, and he paints a bowl of apples, and uh, you look at that, and you want to sit in the museum and watch it for two hours and look at it, look at the light, and, and you're just, this is a stupendous job. Now, the artist didn't do that because he thought we had a shortage of apples around here. Right, that's not what he's doing. He's not telling us that we need more apples. He's telling us that we need more understanding of apples. We need more wisdom concerning apples. We need more, um, uh, we, we need more of a, uh, a sense of awe in the presence of apples. We, we don't, he's not saying, he's, he's not sending secret messages to Safeway to buy, buy more apples. What he's doing is he's telling us that we need, to, we need to understand apples, and what does he do? By this painting, he's naming, right? He's giving a particular name, and he's instructing and shaping our understanding of these things. This is part of what I mean by naming. It's, it's far more than simply attaching labels. When you name a child, it's, there's more involved than simply the, uh, the attachment of a label. And when you compose a piece of music, or when you, um, when you paint a picture, or when you uh, mow your lawn, you are naming, you are exercising dominion, you are shaping, molding, and we have the authority to do this. And we must not do it in the grip of a false, um, a, a false religion. One of the things that uh, is distressing is how people name stars nowadays. You know, they just, they just, LXX10, you know, or they, they have, they're just, they've just given way to this rationalistic model. And I think we ought to name in an old um, and biblical way, name in the ancient way. Next, the man of wisdom, this is critical, the man of wisdom is content with his finitude and he delights in being dinky. Okay? It there's nothing better than, than only coming up off the planet approximately six feet. How much farther is there to go? And how far up do you come? How far up do you get? You don't get very far at all. And we need to embrace that. Now, not only are, am I dinky now, not only am I small now, where was I uh, in 1950? In 1950, I wasn't anything. Talk about small. <laughs> I, was, I was nothing. I, zero. Isn't that a weird thing? And you don't have to think back far. You know, you, uh, you, you know what 10 years is like. 
So think back, um, uh, go roll that over a few times, and pretty soon you're back to the point when the world was flying by and you weren't part of it. You weren't there. You were an absolute um, goose egg. Now, then after that, when, you, when the time came in the providence of God for you to be more than nothing, what were you then? You were a fertilized egg at that point. Strong and powerful. <laughs> Thinking great thoughts. <laughs> just let me out into the world. I'm really going to show them. <laughs> You're just a little tiny fertilized egg for crying out loud. Not, very, uh, not knowing very much. And then you were a baby, toddling, teetering, um, swaying around the house, making the adults laugh. Right? That's what you were. Now, we, we need to reflect on these things. We need to understand that our position now is not that far removed from what we were. Now, there's a difference. There's a distinction. You can grow in wisdom, and there is such a thing as true wisdom. But we have to delight in our finitude. We have to embrace our finitude. This is, um, I think, required by the teaching of Scripture. Even when we grow up and we start, we were born casting sidelong glances, we, uh, comparing ourselves to others. And we say, oh, well, I'm tall. Why, why, when, when you say you're tall, why do you say you're tall? Well, you're tall compared to all the other short people in the world, right? You've got a race of short people, and you're the tallest of the short people. Uh, uh, why do you say you're strong? Why do we play national anthems and put gold medals on people's necks? Because they're the strongest of the weak people, right? This is all a grand version on one level. I'm simply talking about our physical position in the world. We are all right out of Horton, here's a who, okay? Isaiah said that we are to, at the end of chapter 2. Uh, Isaiah said, cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. Now the problem is that God, God created us the way we are. God gave us our bodies. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so this, as we consider it from another angle, remember wisdom is cumulative. And someone's going to say, how, how on the one hand can you make fun of and poke fun at our finitude and our tininess and the other, and then and later on in the talk or maybe later on in the conference uh, be talking about how we're created in the image of God and we have dignity and there's true wisdom and so forth. Remember what wisdom does. Wisdom does not uh, try and reduce it down to the, to the ultimate P and not P and say, ah, you've got a P and not P here, you've got a contradiction. What you have is this, the, something that wise men have seen for millennia. What is man? What is man? On the one level, he is not much at all. On one level, cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. On the, other, uh, on the other hand, he bears and carries the imago Dei, the image of God. Something glorious is, has happened here. And remember what I said in the, as the first point. The word of God, the eternal logos, became a man. All right? And he was probably approximately six feet tall. He, didn't, he came up off the ground the same way we can, he walked the same way we walk. And so God has embraced in the person of Jesus Christ this mystery and has exalted us in that. But note that the exaltation is through Christ, not through man in his own strength, man in his own merit, man in his own power. 
if we submit to the lowliness that God has assigned to us, if we embrace it, submit to it, uh, hail it as a long-lost friend, if we submit to it, then God lifts us up. If you humble yourself, then God lifts you up. If you lift yourself up, then God slaps you down. This is the way the world works. If you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, he lifts you up. If you vaunt yourself, if you lift yourself up in his presence, you're inviting him to strike you. Those who fight their finitude, who try to get outside their own heads, are trapped in a lifelong fight with an epistemic tar baby. They, they, want, to, they want to get some place where they can think grand thoughts. They want to get some place where they can be like God. They want to get some place where they can be omnipotent and omniscient and know everything and have all the angles and do every math problem in the universe in their head and be able to just do it. They want to get out and say, I don't want to be bound here and now. Um, it strikes me more than a few times that I'm living my life in Idaho. Here I am in Idaho. But suppose I said, well, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm living in Idaho. This is, a, this is mostly trees, right? Moscow's got 18,000 people, and it's the 10th largest town in Idaho. We are in the top 10. All right, so if you drive from here to Boise, you will see trees, lots of trees. Well, suppose, what, what happens if I say, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to live here in Idaho. I'm going to move to Montana. All right. All right. Hey, you, you get my point. I can move to New York. I can move here. I can move there. Wherever you go, there you are. Right. Words to live by. Wherever you go, there you are. If you fight with your finitude, you will be eternally, constantly frustrated. If you, if you embrace what God has given you, then he lifts you up. If you fight what he has given you, then he uh, leaves you to your own frustrated desire. And I believe the end result of that frustrated desire is the outer darkness, when you have nothing but eternal frustration, eternal gnashing of teeth, eternal inability to cease being what you are. Uh, sanity, wisdom, biblical knowledge embraces the wisdom of God as he apportions. The goal is not epistemic certainty, but rather a gracious gift of epistemic rest. The goal is not epistemic certainty, something that I achieve by my ability to think, by my ability to argue, by my striving. It is not of him who wills, or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Why does one simple Christian have epistemic rest? Great philosophers, great um, unbelieving theologians would look at a simple believer who has epistemic rest and says, I, I was saved by Jesus Christ and my sins were forgiven and I walk with, I walk with him and I worship him on the Lord's day. They're a very simple Christian. And the wise of this world, the scribe of this world, the man who's trying to get outside of his own head, looks at that simple Christian and says, you say that because you're stupid. You say that because you're stupid. You say that because you can't think. You, you can't think yourself up into this high level of discontent that I've gotten myself into. <laughs> yeah, who's, who's stupid? It doesn't make sense to try to... Those, those simple Christians who accept what God has given them have received a gift, and that's wisdom. 
And the people who fight against what God has given them, no matter how smart they are, are foolish. So we should seek after epistemic rest, which is the gift of God. God gives good gifts to his children. And we don't have anything good unless it's given to us. Next, the man of wisdom does not reduce wisdom to mere propositions. Propositions are included, including this one, but they do not exhaust the subject. Okay? When I say wisdom is not bounded by propositions, it's not limited by, if, wisdom is not the sum total of my beliefs. Now, what I just told you, that's a belief. I'm not fighting against propositions. We are not quarreling with propositions. Wisdom, uh, propositions are included in wisdom, including the proposition that propositions are included in wisdom. Okay, I'm embracing my use of propositions. I'm using propositions to talk to you. But I hope that by, this, by the grace of God, that more is imparted, more is communicated than just propositions. Right? If, uh, as my mother was fond of saying when she was leading Bible studies, less, less ink, more think. Right? Ponder, study, weigh, reflect. And more can be extracted from propositions than simply the straight value of them. Life is not algebra. Life is not math. Math and algebra are included in it, but there's more to it than that. Wisdom includes many things beyond our propositional beliefs. This is not postmodern flimflam. Wisdom is not sub-propositional. Wisdom does not fall short of propositions. Right? When, when Jesus says that in the resurrection we neither marry nor are given in marriage, he's not saying that we have uh, some uh, state that's less than what we have now. He's not saying that in heaven we all fall, fall short of the standard that was established here on earth. He is saying that in the resurrection we're like the angels and we transcend, we go beyond. Um, what we have there is, uh, picks up and includes, transcends, and fulfills what marriage is here. It doesn't fall beneath it. It doesn't fall below it. In the same way, uh, in the same way, propositions are important, but it's important also not to be content with just a series of propositions. Wisdom is oblique. Wisdom can be imprecise. Sometimes, for the tidy-minded, wisdom can be exasperatingly imprecise and metaphorically accurate. In other words, God has given us, through the Word, through the Logos, through the eternal Word of God, God has given us the ability to use words metaphorically. Meta metaphors are not simply decorative things attached later on with real work of language being done with the, with the math equations down beneath the decorative words that we sprinkle on top of it. No, uh, words communicate, metaphors oftentimes communicate more than a precise uh, expression does. So for example, the, the example that I used for this is suppose I say, I give you two, two uh, statements. One, God is immutable. God is immutable. And another statement, God is like a mountain, never changing. Right? God is immutable. God is like a mountain, never changing. Now, the first one, God is immutable, is strictly speaking, in an algebraic sense, in a mathematical sense, it's more accurate. Right? God is immutable. 
And I, I know what I'm referring to when I say that, and I would say, you know, that's more accurate that, than the, the second statement. But I would say the second statement, although it's less accurate in a strict technical sense, it communicates more truth. God is like a mountain, never changing, communicates more truth about God's nature than the bare statement, God is immutable. And why do I say it's less accurate? Well, if you treat it like a, it, metaphorically, it's not inaccurate at all. Metaphorically, it does the job it's supposed to do. But if you treat it like a math problem, you say, well, actually, God is not like a mountain because I can give you 22 respects in which God is not like a mountain at all. God is bigger than a mountain, for example, and God is uncreated and a mountain is creative, and God is, um, uh, you know, you, you just go through the whole list, all the differences between God and a mountain. But what the, what the expression, and, and you say, and furthermore, the statement it contradicts itself. God, God is like a mountain, uh, never changing, because we all confess that mountains, in fact, change. See? Mountains change, and God's not like a mountain. But of course, the, how does the Bible speak to us? The Bible says God is a rock, and his work is perfect. Well, rocks don't have perfect works. <laughs> what are you talking about? All right? the, the Bible expresses a great deal of truth to us by means of oblique and imprecise metaphor, and yet the imprecision of the metaphor in a mystery makes it very precise indeed. We are built, in, built to understand metaphor. And this is why uh, people who are steeped in Scripture understand, I believe, and can, can uh, gain from uh, the, the uh, wisdom that's found in systematic theologies. But people who are left alone with systematic theology apart from the Bible, uh, I think, wreck themselves. The Word took on flesh. It wasn't the formula took on, uh, took on flesh. It was the Word who took on flesh. Rationalism, bare-bones rationalism, is a bonsai bush in a flower pot. Wisdom is the jungle of the Amazon basin. You, some people like to have every leaf, leaf in place. They like to have everything tidy. They, want, they don't want any surprises. Right? They want to be a gardener, and they want their pot, and they want the bonsai bush in the pot, and that's what they want. And everything else just messes them up. It just makes life untidy. Well, life lived in wisdom is untidy. A man of wisdom glories in the world of stuff. A man of wisdom glories in the world of stuff. He lives in a world of concrete things, and he loves communicating in terms of concrete images. And consequently, wisdom is a treasure, treasure chest and not the W in an equation. All right? if, I don't want you to walk away from here saying, okay, what is wisdom? I want to, W equals what? Right? W equals what? Don't do that. Wisdom, wisdom is not like that. Now there's a, there's a point in a time where you can teach kids to, to take apart someone's argument, and I don't have a problem as a pr procedure with teaching kids to assign P's and Q's to the structure of an argument to, to search for an informal fallacy or a, form, a formal fallacy or whatever. That's not, that's not a problem as long as you realize that that's simply uh, a stage that the kids are growing, going through um, it's like teaching them to diagram sentences. You, you teach kids to diagram sentences in junior high because you want them to understand English grammar, but you don't want them to go through life diagramming every sentence they write. 
You want them to be able to take that skill of diagramming and you want that to fall away like scaffolding after the building is done. You want the diagramming to fall away and you want them to be able to express themselves by means of sentences uh, that they use to communicate with others and they don't do it in, in a way that uh, they, they constantly have this scaffolding in their mind. And when people go through life seeing nothing but P's and Q's in letters to the editor, there's a problem. Right? The problem is that they, the scaffolding has not fallen away yet. But this is not a problem with the P's and Q's in themselves. And this is related to the next point. A man of wisdom does not hesitate or does not refuse to take medicine when he is sick. The analytic and precise language in the creeds, for example, is necessary in a world full of liars. Okay, in a world full of liars, you could have gotten Arius and Athanasius to agree that God is like a mountain never changing. Right? You could have gotten them to agree on poet, you know, some poetic uh, statement, get some arch heretic and some great champion of the Christian faith, and you say Jesus Christ has, mount, has ascended on the mount of all strength, and say, can we agree on that? Uh, well, yeah, you could get every heretic in the world to uh, agree with that. And because men are liars, one of the things we have to do is, is recognize that analytic language, precise language, highly defined technical language, I believe, is an absolute necessity in a world full of sinners and liars. And this is why we have the creeds the way they, uh, the way they are. Creeds that express themselves in scriptural language, I think, are no good at all. Right? Because the heretics know how to twist scriptural language. That's why they're heretics. That, that's why they're doing what they, they do. So the language of the creeds, picture it this way. The language of the creeds is like an iron fence around the garden. Right? It's, it's the iron fence around the garden, and it's to keep uh, people out who would trample the garden. But there are some reform types who you, you say, oh, look at that garden over there, a lovely iron fence around the garden. And you walk up and you peer over the fence, and what do you have? There's another iron fence and then another iron fence, and then a, you have a, just a little acre of iron posts. There's no garden. What do you, and I'd say, what are you protecting? <laughs> I'm protecting my iron fence. The purpose of the fence is so that you can grow vegetables in the garden. The, the purpose of the fence is so you can grow uh, flowers in the garden. Lastly, the man of wisdom lives in community and does not refuse to associate pe with people simply because they're dead. Right? Uh, he's not snooty. He likes to hang out with dead people. Uh, uh, there's a great uh, quote that I uh, came across in a biography of Samuel Davies. Samuel Davies was a great um, uh, Presbyterian preacher in, in Virginia uh, prior to the War for Independence. And in a letter, he says, uh, he's talking to a, a, an acquaintance about how he loves his situation. And he says, I, I have a peaceful study as a refuge from the hurries and noise of the world around me. The venerable dead are waiting in my library to entertain me and relieve me from the nonsense of surviving mortals. So, so whenever, he, when it, whenever he got tired of the piffle, he would retreat to his study and commune with his friends, the dead. Well, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, admirable essay on the reading of old books, exhorted us not to be chronologically provincial. Uh, we need to learn to read canonically. And, I, and I, by this, I'm, I'm referring to um, that which is beyond the boundaries of Scripture. There's, of course, the canonical Scriptures. But I'm talking about the Western canon. I'm talking about our cultural canon. You walk through Barnes and & Noble, and, and it, will, it should astound you that, that all these people, all these books were written by somebody. Somebody wrote them. And, and you should start wondering why every other person you know isn't a published author. 
<laughs> look at all these books. And you say, how? I love to read books. I love books. How? But how am I going to get through them all? Any different circle. Well, let's thank God. Father, we thank you for the, our time together now, and I, I pray that you'd um, bless and keep us as we reflect on these things and as, as we think through them and as we discuss and debate them together. We thank you. And- Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a message from our audio collection titled Poetic Knowledge. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.